Please enter your access code followed by the pound or hash sign. I am Alex Kaufman, and you have dialed in to PodSAM, an off-season project of me, the Wintry Mix podcast guy, and Sam Magazine, the voice of the mountain resort industry. This is the fifth installment of our six-episode batch derived from the highlights of Sam's Summit series, which brought together industry leaders, aka the mentors, with a question-asking audience of 10 middle management up-and-comer types from resorts across the U.S. Topics include management skills, problem-solving techniques, finance, capital planning, and risk. Because this was derived from actual conference calls, there's a bit of typical phone interference and such, but it's totally worth it. Since this is number five, that means there's one more to go and there's four in the archive behind it, so get caught up. Episode five, mentors you're about to hear from are John Rice, GM of Sierra at Tahoe, and Chris Blombach, GM of Pat's Peak in New Hampshire. Rice has held management positions at several California resorts, was instrumental in welcoming snowboarders to the Mountain Resort guest list, and is a 2001 Sammy Award winner. Chris Blombach started at Pat's Peak, New Hampshire in 1991 as the operations manager before being named general manager, a position he's held for the last 21 years. Prior to Pat's Peak, he was at Magic Mountain in Vermont as the snowmaking supervisor and base area operations manager. Throughout these episodes, you will also occasionally hear from Paul Tallner, founder of High Peaks Group, an organizational change consultancy, Paul serves as moderator on the series of calls, so let's get started. Paul? We'll start uh, by asking each of you, Chris and John, to um, uh, you know, start off with a, a story, uh, a story of a moment in your career, uh, earlier in your career, where you learned an important lesson in risk management. And after we do that, we'll kind of dig into sort of what that all means. But if, if, uh, if we could just sort of hear when it became real for you, that would be a great place to start. Okay. Well, this is John. I'm, I'm one of the few uh, GMs that came through the risk management door, actually, to becoming a general manager. I was a young intern at Squaw Valley back in 1977-78. My first season, I, I wound up getting a job in dispatch. And on a particular spring day in March in 78, we had a, a very powerful storm came through with winds uh, they had recorded gusts as high as 150 to 200 miles an hour. It was just a real driving, wet, uh, big storm. A day when most people had gone home, I was on dispatch that day and heard some loud noises and realized that the windows were breaking around me and the uh, infrastructure of the cable car was falling apart due to some unknown reason and the counterweight hit full uh, speed to the ground, made a, a sound I'll never forget. and then looked out my window and saw the, the cable going up and down, bouncing up and down, realized something wasn't right and called out on the radio, does anybody know what happened? And you know, they said, we've got a major accident. Our tram had been cut in two by the cable that carried the, the, uh, the two cable cars up and down. It slipped out of its track and it sliced through the car and people were, had fallen out. Some people were uh, pinned by the cable and such spent the next probably 14, 15 hours on the rescue effort and trying to coordinate from dispatch. And also um, after the fact out there actually doing rescues on the hill till two or three in the morning, I went home and I wrote a long journal about it 
And um, as a college intern, to have that kind of an experience, I realized that we're, we're not at Disneyland anymore. I, I started my career at Disneyland. Uh, I realized we're not there anymore, and this is a you know a high, very high risk industry we're in. And I was sort of forced by uh, that incident to realize this the seriousness of what can happen at a ski area. I uh, was fortunate to have some great mentors at the time, a gentleman who's no longer with us. His name was Dick Williams. He was one of the uh, the real uh, stalwarts of risk management early days and uh, found a few folks that he wanted to impart his wisdom to. And I was really fortunate to be able to work with him and learn about how a resort can manage risk. And because we're full of risk, that's what we are. That's why people are drawn to us. Uh, not only as an employee to work there, but as a guest, you come for the, the the risk of man versus mountain and and all things that go with it. So, I guess I didn't really have a choice. I was uh, risk management was not a discipline. Uh, there were no titles risk manager at Skiers in those days. It was a very new discipline. I was very fortunate to be part of the development of the whole way of looking at managing losses, protecting resort assets, and preventing losses, and then after the fact, how to mitigate the effects of a loss, and, and was able to carry that throughout my career. And it, it, uh, I think we've all seen things that are scariest uh, these these days, especially just turn on the internet and see some of the crazy stuff that's out there. Uh, everybody's got a camera now and they can film it. And so I was sort of thrown right into that fire, and uh, an experience I'll never forget. That's incredible. Uh, thanks a lot for that story. Chris, how about you? Um, that was, uh, I remember that one specifically in the headlines of the, the national newspapers back in the time. But uh, probably the worst case scenario that I was ever presented with was it was a, uh, a lazy Sunday afternoon in the springtime at a ski area I used to work at. And uh, just when things were starting to wind down at around quarter of four, four, just just a few minutes before four o'clock, it was a, uh, a springtime day and the ski lifts were fully freighted. And uh, first thing I heard over the radio, I was a, a lift mechanic, uh, junior lift mechanic at the time, uh, is we had a uh, situation where grips started sliding back on our summit chair. And uh, through a compression tower, uh, we had six chairs get bound up. Uh, before the safety circuit finally tripped, and uh, that was a, a two-part risk management thing for me. One was uh, the risk management and what was involved in, in getting the folks off the lift and uh, the interaction between mountain operations, ski patrol, and uh, state agencies in trying to get everybody off the lift in a timely fashion and to figure out what happened, and that kind of dovetailed into uh, risk management for for our project in that um, one of the, the lesson takeaways that I got from that was uh, we were working for an organization at the time that was cash strapped and uh, they thought they had figured out why the grips had uh, had slid back and they waited till the fall to do the non-destructive testing and that ended up being a catastrophic event for us because the first thing we found out was when, uh, mind you, I was just a lift mechanic at the time, so I wasn't heading up the project, thankfully. Um, when we approached various manufacturers in the September-October timeframe to cast us new grips because uh, this was a ski lift that had uh, 
it was what we would refer to as an orphan lift. It was not picked up by any of the major manufacturers. Um, when the first quotes came back for an 18 to 20 week lead time to get these grips, uh, and mind you, September and October, do the mathematics there, you lose a couple of heartbeats when that's your main summit chair to the top. Uh, it taught me a valuable lesson about pulling preventative maintenance in the springtime and to make sure that all long lead lead time items are carefully planned out the day you close uh, versus playing the cash flow game of uh, the fall. And uh, one of the best things that I ever learned and cut my teeth on as a, as a, as a rookie in the business, if you will, is that um, it, it paid paid off in spades to work for an organization that didn't have any money because not only did I learn how to make a dollar go a dollar fifty, but it also told me a lot of not what to do. So those first four to five years were pretty formulative in my mind in terms of uh, how I operate the ski area today. How much of your brain space at the moment um, is occupied by <laughs> thinking about risk? I mean, is it is it more more on the order of 80 percent or more or is it somewhere in that you know 20 percent range or how, i mean obviously inherent in the in the industry but uh tell, tell me a little bit about how how it permeates your your thinking on sort of a day-to-day basis and maybe john let me start with you well i just say because i'm wired that way i have belonged to a couple of safety organizations safety engineers american society safety engineers i was in the risk management insurance uh association for a while and networking with a lot of folks there so i'm one of those guys when i go into the hotel i look at where's the emergency access i look at the fire extinguisher is it was it charged these guys have a plan what am i going to do if um to a fault so that's probably how i see things here at the resort so i'm probably 80 plus when it comes to all the things that can go wrong um i'm always looking at you know what's the what's the plan what's the communication who's aware, what I've tried to do is translate that, what I've learned, to everyone that works here, starting with our management team and then all the way to the front line and orientation. I spend uh, some of my minutes in orientation and my welcome talking about uh, the culture of safety and risk and how we're in a in extremely high-risk environment, being in the mountains with, with ice and snow and, and extreme weather, wind, sun, all those things, but that with thoughtful planning and uh, preparation, we can prevent losses and, and not lose people or lose equipment and those kinds of things. So um, what I realized probably more than anything is I can't do it all myself. And uh, years ago, I, again, through really good mentors that I've had, I was able to learn how to engage others in that process and through recognition and reward programs, get everybody to be a risk manager. So it makes my job easy. And then I can go up to them and ask them a question and they can relay back to me all the things that they thought about with respect to all the checklists that they do before they open, um, what processes they follow after something occurs. And, and, um, but it, it definitely occupies more than 80% of my, my view on the world. Chris, how does your brain work when it comes to risk management? Oh, that's a scary place to go. I'm not sure you want to go there. Uh, every day I walk around I walk around our facility and I think how can our business plan be defeated? And um I'm always I'm always trying to work collaboratively collaboratively with our team members and trying to figure out 
what's plan A, what's plan B, C, and D. And, uh, you know, to use the analogy that's probably been pummeled to death, you know, being a general manager is a lot like driving a car. You're out looking out on the horizon. You're looking down the highway four or five miles down the road, and then occasionally you're glancing at your, your instruments to make sure that uh, the machine and the team are running um, fine. You have to You have to look at internal threats to that, business plan as you also need to look at external threats and uh, you know internal things can be projects uh, that can go awry and external threats can be things like um, climate change they can be uh, uh, regulatory issues they can be a, a myriad of issues and you're always you're always trying to figure out what is going to defeat your business plan you can uh, I'll give a quick story on uh, one that we never really even saw coming and and as, as cautious as I am and as conservative as I can be um, we recently purchased a ski lift uh, from a ski area or from a from a location down in Connecticut and uh, we thought we had all of our ducks lined up uh, we put together a pretty thorough plan to remove that ski lift you know we knew it was going to be a challenge because of the terrain and, um, you know, we knew we were going to be requiring a helicopter. We had three helicopter companies lined up as my plan A, B, C, and D. Uh, you know, we even had a ground game ready to go. And um, we were defeated by Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. And you might ask, what does a hurricane in Puerto Rico have to do with removing a ski lift in Connecticut? Well, I found out that the federal government contacts all helicopter companies at the uh, start of the calendar year, and they basically say, hey, look, we'll, uh, we'll enlist your services. You can get on our list. If We'll give you a little stipend to be on our list, but if we ever call you, uh, you're going to need to come a-running. The byproduct of that was, was is that all of these helicopter companies have more or less embraced being on this list because they never get called for the most part. I mean, I can't speak for John out in the Tahoe region. I'm sure he has his firefighting, but at least on the East Coast, a lot of these guys were never really uh, concerned with signing up on the list. And uh, lo and behold, plan A, B, C, and D were all wiped away from us when Hurricane Maria came along because um, all those helicopter companies were enlisted in restoring power down in Puerto Rico. And I have to say that uh, seven months on since we purchased the lift, the half of the lift is still standing there because we still, even to this day in March, cannot get a helicopter company out of Puerto Rico because they've all been enlisted by FEMA and the Army Corps of Engineers. And uh, that's a that's a that's a good that's a good classic case of you think you covered your ducks when you have a plan A, B, and C, but. Um, blew a hole right inside of that thing so we're we're still trying to get that ski lift out and that's uh that's kind of where we're at very interesting yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about that so about risk management as a as an idea um you know the the examples um that that both of you shared were big events and things but i'm wondering you know how deep does it go like so how how do you help uh your leaders at your scary is understand risk management as a concept for doing other work in the organization besides you know safety there might be some other aspects of of risk management we could explore here today so you know what what other kind of facets to this uh to this concept are there that that matter uh, to emerging leaders in in the ski industry 
Well, uh, if we want to stay with the same batting order, I'll go ahead. There, if you look at the assets <clears throat> that a resort has to be protected, all the physical assets, building lifts, trails, lots, machinery, and then you look at all the human assets, the people. Obviously, there's a whole other classification of assets. There's digital, there's reputation, there's trademarks, there's you know a lot of things that you might have loss prevention programs for. Because the scary is is really a hundred small businesses jammed into one. You have from everything from reservations, online marketing, advertising, CRM, then you get into the people you follow them in, transportation, parking, we're in the bus business, uh, in the lift operations and maintenance side of things, and grooming with the snowcats and things we build in train parks, daycare, everything goes with that, lessons, rentals. As you start looking across the resort, retail, doesn't matter. We do welding and fabrication, food and beverage services, catering events. It, they're all done in this ever-changing environment that we live in. So when you think about what can go wrong, there are so many things that can go wrong in so many ways. There's things that we can control and there's things that we can't. If we want to say those caused by nature, acts of God, whatever you want to call them, wind, snow, avalanche, hail, flood, tornado, all those things we're dealing with, versus things that are caused by people. Uh, whether it's fire, explosion, um, you know, environmental issues, mechanical failures and accidents, uh, and then all the third-party losses caused by stolen data, for example, digital losses, revenue losses. With PCI compliance now, if you don't handle people's credit information properly, you can, you can have exposure there. So if you think of all those things, we, we now have to add to that list things like ADA website claims that NSA is sending things out on. Like you have to make sure your, your website is ADA compliant. Um, active shooter. I mean, things we never even had to think about before. Now, all of a sudden, are on the list of all the things that can go wrong. From a loss prevention perspective, I think the mindset has to be that we're going to do everything we can in terms of systems and awareness and make every person here a risk manager. So instead of one person who works five days a week with a hard hat walking around with his clipboard, you now have in my case, I've got 850 people that are looking for, constantly looking out for where there might be exposures and where the business could be affected, whether it's a, a single guest, whether it's a piece of equipment making a funny sound, or all those things that can go wrong and really looking at it from that point of view. the Then once we do, if we do have a loss of some kind, you switch over to loss control and then it becomes the mitigation side. There's less people involved in that. But if they know how to how to act at the moment something happens, uh, there's a better chance you're going to have a chance of mitigating that loss. And it's, it's interesting with we have these disaster plans and emergency procedures plans, and we plan for all these scenarios. And, of course, they never happen like they are in the book. And so there has to be some training and some thought ahead of time. There also has to be people making good decisions and communicating well so they can adapt to whatever situation might be there and able to then to respond and put life safety first. And that's sort of the how we do it here. And uh, I will say that the recognition piece is important. We are quick to recognize people and reward people for not having losses or for making saves or quick action, quick thoughts that uh, took a bad situation and turned it around. And uh, I think once you engage people and show, what, show them what's in it for them, they will then become part of that preventative process. And anything we can do on prevention is saving us time on the other side of the equation. And the other side of the equation, as we know, is hundreds of thousands of dollars in, in losses in time and energy that's, that's wasted. So 
we, we call them unforced errors that we're not, it's kind of stealing from tennis. We can't have any unforced errors, especially in a season like we're having this year. A simple loss in a big year, you might say, well, that goes with snow removal. There's going to be some broken windows. A loss in a year when you're, when you're really hurting financially, that thing stands out like a sore thumb, not only at the resort, but upline. And so um, it's engaging everyone in that process is key. And as a young leader, I think it's really key that people see their role and realize their purpose in this. The more they can show they understand what these things can do. Um, I, I've got some examples for later when we talk here about how little things went wrong and could have been prevented. But uh, the best thing a young leader can do is be aware and understand the risks and do everything they can to prevent them. The PodSAM conversation continues after this quick thank you to PodSAM and Summit Series partner Mountain Guard. Mountain Guard has been serving the ski industry since 1962, providing resort special coverages, education, claims handling, and risk management expertise. Learn more at mountainguard.com. Yeah, I think John touched upon the the the, um, the daily operation of a ski area fantastically there, if that's a word. Um, you know, one of the things that I would add to that is... Uh, um, you know, we've got a big red book up in our marketing office, which is which is kind of a crisis communication guide. And when when stuff hits the fan at a ski area, uh, as John mentioned, you know, you you've got a little you've got a little city going on here. You've got childcare, you've got food service, you've got snowcat operators, you've got lift, lifts going up the side of the hill. And we've tried to outline a scenario, and we do a, a debrief, if you will after every situation here so that, uh, you know, our tab book, which started with three tabs uh, probably 10, 15 years ago, is probably up to about 50 tabs. And we also pay particular attention to what happens in the industry. And when we see an, uh, an event out there on the industry landscape that we think could affect us, we kind of take uh, a deconstruct of what the the ski area that was affected did and we kind of tailor it to our our local response here and we we kind of include that into our, our 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 big red book we call it some of the advice that i can impart to individuals that are coming up through the ranks is to just kind of have options whether you are a small umbrella on a small project or a large umbrella on a large project, uh, you've got to be always thinking about different things that can go wrong with your your projects or that you might be doing over the summertime. And uh, we always like to develop options. You know, when we are uh, rebuilding ski lifts or rebuilding gearboxes, we like to make sure that we keep two or three different gearbox companies in the fold. If we're rebuilding electric motors uh, or if we need a repair job, we always make sure that we have two to three electric motor companies in the fold and just to to give options and to be able to develop plans A, B, and C uh, going forward. I think uh, John touched upon perfectly the daily operation of the ski area. And uh, I think from a project perspective, it, you know, the more – the more things that you can keep in play, the the better off your options are going forward if something goes off track. That's fascinating. I mean, I think just that last example of um, 
you know, relationship development as a risk management strategy <laughs> is fascinating, you know, keeping uh, good relationships with a couple of different companies that you may need. So when we started, we talked about some of the uncontrollable, right? So the, the hurricanes and other forces that, that uh, you can plan for the unlikely event of active shooter kinds of situations, hurricanes, you know, attacks on your digital infrastructure and so on. Um, and then there's the other things that you were talking about with respect to unforced errors, the human side of, of risk. One of the questions that has, has come in from, uh, from the group uh, on chat is about uh, developing a, a culture of risk management among the management team. Um, so, you know, I know you, you talked a little bit about, you know, everybody being a risk manager, manager at some level, but is there, you know, anything in particular you do with your senior leadership team uh, to help them tune in um, and think in this way, you know, in all facets of this, you know, how do you, how do you develop that skill and capability among your, your leadership uh, group? You know, I just, I think culturally a resort, a company that has a low occurrence of losses, whether it's work comp injuries or liability losses, generally equates to a pretty solid culture of people that like where they work and appreciate the, the values of that company and want to help not have those losses. It, it, when I first started at Sierra, I'll never forget my first day here. I lined up the five employees that the previous employer left, and the guy who was in charge of lift maintenance at that time was, was standing there, and I said, listen, you guys, one of the things I'm all about is safety. I don't want anybody to get hurt. And I said, I, I fully expect that we'll, we'll be able to go an entire year without a lost time injury. And the guy looked at me like I was crazy, and he's laughing to his buddy. And I said, what's so funny? And he said, stuff happens. People get hurt. He goes, we're, you know, we're not in a – padded room here we're out there climbing lift towers and we got wrenches and and, and stuff happens and people are going to get hurt i said really how many are going to get hurt this year and he goes well i don't know five or six <laughs> i don't know and i said okay well who can you tell me who so i can because i'd like you to call their you know their family and tell them your you know your husband's going to lose an arm and you, and your your dad's going to have a broken leg and he's going to you know uh, have a broken thumb and he's going to have his eye put out and he's he's looking at me like what and I said, well, if you're so sure that somebody's going to get hurt, then tell me how it's going to happen. And, and, and obviously, I'm trying to get him to think about, okay, well, accidents really are preventable, and, and culturally, we have to think a different way. And I said, I'll tell you what, every day you guys go without a lost time injury, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna track it, and we're gonna put money in a pot, and we're all gonna share it at the end of the year. And he's like, okay, well, we'll see how long that lasts. And I said, well, we'll see how long you last as the leader if you're sure people are going to get hurt. <laughs> so, yeah. fast forward about seven years later he's getting his his plaque and he's moving up and on and and um he's standing there and it's time for him i gave my little talk and it's time for him to give his talk and he got up there and he said you know i've been here for seven years and i've seen a lot of things happen in this industry i've seen a lot of bad things and and um i love it i love this business but i never thought we could go without people getting hurt. And I just want to say my biggest accomplishment here was we went two years without one of my mechanics missing a day of work because of an injury and he starts breaking down, you know, he's choking up. And then he says, I just, and that's the thing I'm the most proud of. And then the job that he left us for was to become a state lift inspector. So he now works for Cal OSHA doing elevators and lifts. And, uh, he came to me after and he said, thanks, you know, for changing my, my mind about this because I really believe that stuff happens. And I said, well, stuff is caused and you can look at your crew and know none of them had to lay in a hospital bed because of working here. And he goes, that's, that's so foreign to what way I was brought up in this business that we're just 
tough guys and stuff happens and you know so it's that culture shift has to start with individuals and they have to see their link to the success of the organization certainly you can tell them the downside if we have a loss it's going to cost us x and you can put add that to their budget or whatever you can do tricks like that i like to use a motivational way of together if we all make it this effort we'll share in the in the upside and i'll i'll take a slice of this off i if if the company makes it to no loss work time at thanksgiving they all get a turkey whoever's employed at the time if they make it to christmas then they all get a bottle of wine and a christmas ornament if they all make it to you know that's something we've done here for through the years and so the idea being that they all share in it our record here at sierra is four years without a lost time injury at 2.5 million man hours without a person missing a day of work due to a accident. And some people think that's unrealistic, but it is achievable when you can get a, an entire company and one guy can't do it. The risk manager can take the credit for it, but you know, he doesn't, he doesn't do it. And, and often you'll see people at Sierra wearing shirts or sweatshirts or hats that have the inscription NLT on it, which means no lost time. And while it's only one aspect of, of all the risk of scary faces, to me, it's one of the most important because you're talking about your people and keeping them whole. And once you get their mindset thinking that way, then you can take that and use that success across the resort. Chris, do you want to add on to that? Uh, it takes a long time. I remember when I was a, a lift mechanic here back in the day, and uh, I said that we were going to start using harnesses for for doing lift maintenance, I, get, I got the look from the two lift mechanics who were here at the time, and I, I can tell you, uh, coming from a, a supervisor or a management role at the time, when a top-down edict comes, it, it goes over like a fart in church. It uh, it's it's not something that's usually well embraced. It, it takes a long time to change a company culture, and what I mean by a long time is I, I'm literally in years. Uh, you know, I flash forward from that initial reaction to what we were going to start using lift harnesses 20 years ago for our mechanics to um, pretty proud of the guys and gals that work for our organization now in that they're not going to pick up a chainsaw without chaps. They're not going to climb a tower without a, a lift harness. And um, a lot of the things that, you know, we used to kind of when I got into the business 25, 30 years ago, I can't believe I've said that I've been in it that long, but it used to be a little bit of the wild, wild west. And you were kind of, your your immediate leaders above you were kind of like, get the job done at all costs. And as we've evolved as an organization and, and we fine tune it, we've uh, established a breed of safety culture within our company. And I got to say that that did not happen overnight. And it is not going to happen in a year's time, but you've got to keep working at it on a uh, almost a daily basis to make sure that that culture permeates. And it, it takes a lot to sell to change the culture of a organization. One of the things that we did here at our place is, uh, and I don't know how many of you folks are familiar with how workers' compass is calculated, and I don't know if it's calculated the same way nationwide, but you have what's called a work mod rate. If, if your payroll, I'm going to just use some mathematics here to, to keep it simple, but if you have a million-dollar payroll and your work comp rate is 1.0 and your premium for that 100000 or that million-dollar payroll is $100,000, uh, 1.0 equals the average of uh, what your industry is rated against other ski areas 
inside of your uh, your business. And what they can do is they can ratchet that rate up if you have higher than average injuries. And let's say uh, you have a 1.2 mod, you know, that $100,000 premium becomes a $120,000 premium because you are, as a ski area compared against your peer set, you are uh, racking up injuries at a greater rate than, let's say, an organization that was just average. Uh, I'm proud to say that our organization, uh, we just had a work comp rate of 0.85. So what that means is that we received a $15,000 reduction in premium, and we have a policy here where as long as we are below 1.0, we are sharing those savings with our employees and if uh, and that savings can be as little as no dollars if we're at average it can be as much as five hundred dollars if we get to the point eight oh and so we we kind of return that back to our employees if they show good habits and stuff like that probably the best line that i ever learned regarding workers compensation uh and setting rates and stuff like that was from peter koch from memic and uh, he basically summed it all up that frequency breeds severity. And uh, the more your employees are getting hurt, the greater of a chance you have at a severe injury. So that's kind of what we've done at our place. The PodSAM conversation continues after this quick thank you to supporting partner Access. Today's skier and rider is tech savvy. They've got easy pass. Hell, their dog has an RFID chip in them. Make sure you are delivering the frictionless and cashless convenience your customers expect, along with mobile-friendly skier tracking via Access RFID ticketing and access control. More info at teamaccess.com. That's teamaxess.com. The the other thing I might, you know, probe both of you on is how, what effort it takes to keep the culture at a high level. Um, it's not like a destination where once you get there, you're good. There has to be some continuous effort to keep the culture um, uh, focused on safety. Uh, you can never really stop. Uh, in fact, that was one of the questions that has, has come in in terms of helping helping mentee, our mentees on the line here uh, or others in, the, in your organizations develop that risk management eye so that they are always vigilant and aware uh, and so that they can be kind of guardians of the culture in some regards to ensure that uh, people are always always keeping their keeping their uh, eyes and ears open for for things. So, what what would you what would you say like in terms of uh, developing that eye? What would you, how would you uh, advise our mentees to uh, tune in? Well, you know, Chris mentioned the uh, more losses equals the higher rates. We know that from our car insurance. If you get in accidents and you turn stuff in, your rates go up. Well, not only do your rates go up, but your reputation starts to suffer with your guests, but also with the insurance companies who uh, now see you as a higher risk and they'll rate you differently. So it definitely has a tail and follows you around as a company. So there's reasons why you want to focus more on the preventative side and culturally that's where you want to get. And, and you mentioned also, Paul, the, uh, once you raise that bar, it's kind of like being on an escalator. If you, you know, once you're heading up, you, you have to keep going. If you stop, you're going the wrong direction. And so if you're going against uh, an, an up escalator, you got to keep moving if you're going to make it up there. I saw a kid at the mall the other day running up the escalator the wrong way, and I'm like, if you stop, you go backwards. Same thing with service. Once you raise your service game, 
and your guests expect a better level of service and you're used to delivering that, you can't let it go. You can't get comfortable and, and start heading backwards. On When it comes to safety and risk, obviously, if you get better rates and you start to get a better reputation and you start to take bigger self-insured retentions, let's say some companies out there, I'm not sure where all of our mentees work, but you may have companies that have self-insured retentions of upwards of half a million dollars per occurrence. They trust enough in their operations and their systems that they're not going to have those losses. So a single loss, um, in the old days, maybe you have a $10,000 deductible on it. Now you have $500,000 deductible. So a single mistake, a loss could cost your company a pretty significant portion of their earnings. And could also be a career limiting move for you. So I think that's where you really got to think about, you know, the severity of what can happen um, for being part of making this mistake. And so the best thing you, you can do is show that you have an understanding, increase your knowledge, show you have an understanding of the risk management process. You can go online, you can learn in 20 minutes kind of what the classic process is of how you identify all the exposures and you uh, analyze the loss potential and select the, the best technique, implement it, and so on. And um, with that, I think it's important you start to earn a reputation in your company as to whether you are going to be somebody who's going to be considered a risk or potential risk or you somebody that they know is they can trust and they can count on. I was I was just at spring training down in, in Scottsdale and I, we were sitting there watching the players and and as they evaluate their players, the coaches are looking at these young rookies and they're saying, well, this guy might have really good stats, but is this person somebody I can trust under pressure? Is this someone who's not going to get injured every other week? Are they going to be on the injured reserve for half the season? So they're looking to get a reputation too, as they can play through the, the tough challenges, they can adapt and they, they have the mindset of wanting to be whole and take care of their, their body and not go out and party every night and become a liability to the organization whether it's on the field or off the field. You know, we're starting to see that in professional sports now. You can be a great athlete, but you can pull the entire team down by something you do outside of work even. So you really got to look at yourself and say, am I a liability to my company or am I an asset? And am I, when it comes to safety and that culture and being part of that, am I one that's going to be on the right side of that? And if you can be seen that way, I guarantee you senior leadership will look at you and go, wow, that person has potential. I trust them. I know that they're going to think about all the effects of their actions, not just do things that are going to cause us to then, you know, have to deal with claims. As a, a young risk manager guy, when snowboarding kind of first got started, I, I looked at uh, building the first train parks and I was Tom Sims and Bert Lamar and some of these guys were telling me, let's do this, let's do this. And here I am, the risk guy, and I'm going into the to the office saying, we need to start building jumps. And they're like, what? No, no, we tear jumps down. But I had the credibility because I had the background and the trust built that I was going to be the guy that was going to have to deal with the claim. So they knew that through my eyes, I'm going to be looking for that stuff. And when I come in and I say, let's build a 60 foot jump, they're going to go, okay, this guy knows what he's doing, you know? So uh, have that, earn that reputation is key and it'll open doors for you that might not be open right now. How about developing that eye, uh, Chris? What do you what what advice would you provide to our mentees on that? Well, I think it's just constant reinforcement of the culture you're trying to establish. You know, we do it here at Pat's Peak with uh, monthly safety meetings. Um, every potential injury that is uh, documented through the OSHA log 
ends up on my desk and I usually revisit with the employee and the direct supervisor and say, can you tell me what kind of happened here? Can we do a, a synopsis of, of how we could possibly avoid this in the future? Uh, it starts also with communication to our staff. Um, if we are, if we're dealing with a particularly difficult project or we're approached, uh, we're approaching something that could be potentially dangerous, we stop, we take a safety minute, we kind of review all the what ifs and uh, how we're going to react. And sometimes just taking that 60 second breather reinforces how, you know, as John alluded to, we can be in a business that has some deadly consequences. And, uh, you know, we've got lifts under tension. We've got high voltage running everywhere. We've got uh, uh, people hanging in the air. So th there's a lot of issues. And if we, um, if sometimes we just stop, breathe, take in, take in all of the environment that we're dealing with, uh, we can, we can talk very crystal clear about um, uh, the potential pitfalls. You know, one of the things that we also do is a risk and reward. Uh, we used to do a Hawaiian Day, or actually we still do a Hawaiian Day festival here, and we were doing helicopter rides. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was a fantastic thing, and, uh, you know, people were getting this, these views of the ski area, and finally our insurance company came to us one, one year, and they said, uh, you know, you, you guys are doing these helicopter rides, and uh, what, what do you get out of this? What is the upshot of it? And, you know, this was probably 15 years ago. I was like, well, you know, we... we, we uh, it's just really fun. And the guy looked at me and goes, it's really fun, but what are you getting out of it? And I, I had to admit, I said, well, we're not making any money off of it. And, uh, you know, the insurance carrier just kind of gave a, a pause on the other side of the desk. And they said, well, why are you doing this? What, you know, you are, you are opening yourself up to such exposure, um, that something could go wrong and you have no control over this situation, and the effects could be catastrophic for not a whole lot of reward. And that kind of dovetails in a little bit to maybe just taking a minute and really assessing, you know, to, to John's point about building a 60-foot jump, you know, should you be doing that? Should you really be doing some of the things that you may have always been doing? So, uh, you know, from a perspective of risk management, we decided that the helicopter rides in and amongst uh, over our ski area with ski lifts fully loaded, we said, yeah, you know what? He's probably right. We should probably stop doing this. So a little bit of risk and reward there. <laughs> yeah, really interesting. So um, we're kind of coming into the, uh, the, the, the final uh, 15 minutes of our conversation today. We have a, a question that's come in from one of our mentees, Brandon. Uh, so I'll read it to you and uh, give you guys an opportunity to, to respond. So uh, it says, how do you deal with the double-edged sword of having a culture of zero incidents, uh, of, of having a culture of zero incidents are possible, but not have it inhibit the importance of also having a strong reporting culture around near misses and incidents as they happen? Okay, well, I, that's a good one. I think if we're, we track not the reportable incidents, we do, obviously we track those and that's an important piece because we learn from the near misses as well. So we encourage that, that conversation happens. Our meetings, every single meeting that occurs here, whether it's at a management level or whether it's down on a frontline departmental level, has what we call the three S's. So the S for service, there's an S for safety, and there's an S for sales because we're always, you know, upselling and looking at what 
is the best opportunity for us given the weather or whatever the case may be. The safety topic is chosen for that week based on what happened the prior week. So if someone fell off a ladder, for example, the topic is going to be ladder safety. We do the same for service. If we had a problem where guests say our employees aren't friendly and they're not making eye contact, we might talk about how to make eye contact and, and do the, uh, you know, the, the first impression. So it, it's consistent message across the company. Now, directly to the question, so a department that reports is not in trouble. In fact, they are rewarded um, for having the guts to come forward and say, this is a problem, we need to address it. And, and does anyone here have any thoughts on how we might do that? And it's a very open dialogue about, hey, have you tried this? Or, you know, the risk manager might actually go over and spend some time with them, with the team, and talk through it and try to come up with answers. So it's kind of a no-fault deal. And if you, like, let's say a year like last year where we had tons of snow in the West and patrol and ski school were the biggest areas of concern because of the deep snow and the amount of snow that was on the hill and, and inability to groom it because it just kept coming, which is, by the way, was the opposite of this year. Um, there was a lot of attention to lower body, how to have your bindings checked, all the things you need to do to be in shape. And, and yeah, we did have some incidents, but again, there is a very aggressive return to work program. People that do get hurt, well, there's always something for them to do here. There's light duty. That's part of how you make it to four years, by the way, without lost time is having good light duty. And getting a, uh, people are not bad people when they get hurt. And it's somebody that reports on property loss. It's the same thing. It's not just work comp. Let's say, let's say you're plowing your lots and in a big year, and you, you know, and you're counting up all your property losses. What we do is $500 is kind of the limit. Anything over 500 requires a drug test and a big follow-up. So it, it's it's magically all the accidents come in at about 497, 498. But the bottom line is you you have to report them because they're going to be seen. The guys in the shop are going to eventually have the truck come in with a dent in it. So you're not in trouble for reporting it. It's okay to report it. It's it's kind of like it's okay to fail, fail fast and move on. Now, if somebody has seven or eight of these things, that's when we've got to sit down and go, is this really somebody we want on this team? Because um, if you know if they're accident prone, that's a whole different deal. But you have to have a culture of it's okay to report. And that it's a great question because it does happen at times. Like you're the bad guy for reporting, but no, it can't be. In fact, you're the bad guy for not reporting. That's, that's where the punishment comes from. And I'll echo John's comments there that uh, we don't we don't penalize for reporting. What we do is uh, we get out and be proactive in managing our accounts. And what we'll try and do is as soon as we've determined that uh, the employee can return to work, we have an aggressive return to work thing. And then we are always communicating with our insurance carrier that we believe a case has been closed out and that uh, they can take it off our books because there's there's a certain time frame where your your work mod rate is. Uh, is set so we're, we're aware of that you know we we are trying to close out as many of our uh cases if you will in february and march uh and april because they know that they're going to set our rate mid-may um but you have to you have to be vigilant you have to be on top of that if you let cases linger out there and you don't have a return to work um you know it's it's you're gonna end up paying out money so thankfully our, our team up here at the mountain is very aggressive in getting everybody on a return to work you know if, if you look at our insurance statistics you know almost 85 percent of our injuries 
occur for employees with a tenure of less than six months. So um, we're constantly reinforcing that message that, you know, if you do get hurt on the job, make sure you report it. We constantly follow up with making sure that that employee is returned to work as quickly as possible. And we're always vigilantly managing our account and having conversations with our workers' comp carrier. That is really great. You know, we've spent a lot of time focusing on, um, you know, risk management as it pertains to um, uh, things that result in, in, in injury. But I just wanted to ask just sort of like around, you know, the applicability of risk management philosophy or, or eyes uh, as it relates to some of those less tangible things, uh, you know, marketing, business strategy, some of those other areas that we, were, we kind of touched on a little bit earlier on. But, you know, how, can you develop the same level of awareness and, and uh, sort of uh, attunement to uh, some of those some of those less uh, less concrete uh, risk management uh, exposures? Yeah, historically, when I was at Snow Summit, we did a lot of events. We built the early train parks and consequently had a lot of events all the way up to X Games. And there was a little bit of a, a an us and them going on between risk and marketing. <clears throat> marketing would bring in these great ideas and risk would say no. And there was a little of that uh, love-hate kind of going on there. And I was kind of in the middle of it. I was also in operations at the time. So I kind of heard both sides of it. And I used to hang out with the marketing people. So here I am, the, the risk guy, you know. But um, we developed a... A simple checklist, sort of a pre-event checklist, that if somebody had an idea and was talking to vans and they wanted to do a big, uh, you know, train park event, for example, with alcohol and all kinds of fun stuff, is there was a checklist that was given to them to fill out ahead of time, and it was understanding the path to getting an event approved, and it really saved a lot of time and trouble and finger pointing because it listed the insurance requirements of need two million this, they have to have work comp, if they're bringing camera people, they have to have the right shoes, you know, all the way down to the details of the contracts, releases for minors had to be signed by parents. Unfortunately, a lot of that was because of after the uh, effect of having some of these events, we saw where we were exposed. But it, it really made for a sort of a no-fault thing. And if you're working with a third party, a group that comes in and they're going to do a movie, for example, and they got the top writer from Sweden and they're going to do this and that, and then you realize you're dealing with a fly-by-night company, it was easier for marketing to say no to them because they're, they just they have no assets, they have no insurance, they just want to come and use your mountain for their event and push their product. So I think all companies, I think most areas today have uh, a very good process for before an event gets taken on from a marketing point of view of all the potential losses. I mean, just even setting up a, a an outside station to take money with the PCI compliance now, you, you, once you have people's credit information, it has to be protected and, and those kinds of things. HIPAA information, for example, in your patrol room where you might be taking people's medical information and those records could be compromised and somebody could wind up with that information. So there, there's so many things in the digital world now with data and the you know, people constantly trying to steal data. Um, but having those pre-checklists, I think, are really good way to force people to walk through what those steps are. And then if you're that person filling that out, don't be afraid to go to other people and ask for help or help, ask for explanation. Because, um, you know, it can be a, a tough maze to kind of get through, but it'll really give you a nice guide to get there. And then to decide whether this is something we should or shouldn't do. That's great. Chris, I'm wondering if, uh, since we had a, a question uh, come in, uh, instead of responding to the, 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 the question that John just uh, responded to, I can give you this one from Nate. Is that a, Would that be all right? That's uh, fine, yeah. 
All right, cool. So Nate, Nate writes, uh, so for large critical events, we found it difficult to conduct safety drills. Do you perform practice drills with your team at the resorts? I would say that uh, what we probably do um, is more of a tabletop exercise because it's hard to establish um, some of the tests there if your event is not built yet. But, um, you know, it starts at the director level where we, uh, in our team, we talk about all the risk and reward. And I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat comforted that John still has a little bit of us versus them. <laughs> Because we have we have the same issue at our place, uh, you know. Marketing sometimes gets out ahead of mountain operations, and our and our mountain ops guys can be a little salty sometimes. And uh, you know, we we have a checklist similar to what John was saying there, talking about risk and reward, logistics, uh, making sure insurance certificates are filled out and stuff like that. And usually, to to kind of bring it back to Nate's question, a lot of those things will get answered on a tabletop exercise, and I and I highly encourage you guys to do that because it will it will it'll bring out a lot of things that haven't been thought about, and uh, you know you just you've got to also trust your people that when the event doesn't when it unfolds and it happens that you've got to empower them and give them the ability to make decisions on the spot because you you're not going to be able to think of everything that uh, is going to be occurring and uh, you know just a simple thing of uh, you know Pat's Peak is a ski area for four and a half months out of the ski season but we're also we also do mountain bike festivals and uh, you know we're not experts in mountain biking so um, we rely on some key critical staff members to educate us as best we can about that but you've got to you're going to run into situations that you don't necessarily run into when you're running a skier and you got to think on your feet and you just got to basically empower your staff to make the right choice. And, uh, I think everybody is pretty much, uh, on the same page when they see something really dangerous that it's, it's kind of glaring and it's obvious, not always, but I would say most time. Since you have successfully arrived at the conclusion of episode five, then you are a great candidate for my next request. Please rate and review PodSAM on Apple Podcasts. It helps other mountain-minded folks find the show. Also consider grabbing a coworker's phone and subscribing them. It'll make them smarter. Episode six will be a roundtable of sorts, and we'll hear from many of the mentees that have been listening in on the series. For more information about Sam's Summit Series, visit the all-new saminfo.com or dig into a recent print edition of the magazine. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Thanks again to Mountain Guard and Access RFID Ticketing for their support of PodSAM. Episode 6 will be out in August. And side note, my primary podcast vehicle, Wintry Mix, will be back from hiatus later in July. If PodSAM is your ski industry vitamins, then Wintry Mix is more like the bacon. Both worth your time, but for different reasons. Until then, I'm Alex Kaufman. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.